Hello, welcome to the Salisbury Pediatric Associates newsletter audio cast. I'm your host, Dr. M, and this is volume 12, letters 17 and 19, which correspond with coronavirus updates number 59 and 60. This information was first published on April 11th, and the second one was published two weeks later on April 25th. So at the time of this writing, Omicron had three strains. The newer variant, BA.2, made up around 23 to 40% of the current case volume based on different parts of the country, while Omicron BA.1.1 was at 60% and BA.1.1.529 was the rest. Delta is no longer registering a blip at all. Disease remains mild compared to the tough Delta strain. And if you had natural Omicron BA.1 like I did, then you have a very small risk of getting BA.2 moving forward. The likelihood of significant illness if you are one of these rare individuals is very small unless you are already very unhealthy. Omicron did its job for immunity. According to the CDC, 95% of tested individuals had evidence of SARS-2 infection in the past. BA.1, Omicron variant, tore through the country, leaving a wake of immune understanding in its path. We should be very well prepared now immunologically for any new exposures. Europe was seeing a new wave back in early April with cases in many of the European countries, as well as a new burden being shown in Asia with massive volumes in areas where there was little a priori immunity to SARS-2 because of lockdowns and other choices that these Asian countries had made in the past. So for me, the lockdowns of the past are now coming full circle to cause more problems for those that had not developed any a priori immunity. The United States remained relatively quiet. And if there is another wave, I think that we'll still have no issues with hospitalization um, relatively because of the T-cell immunity from the massive Omicron wave and previous waves. So let's look at some of the quick hits. Number one, data from SARS-2, the Delta inoculation trial are out in Nature Medicine. From the abstract, 36 volunteers aged 18 to 29 years of age without evidence of previous infection or vaccination were inoculated with a wild-type virus intranasally in an open-label non-randomized trial. After inoculation, participants were housed in a high-containment quarantine unit with 24-hour close medical monitoring and full access to higher-level clinical care. The study's primary objective was to identify an inoculum dose that induced well-tolerated infection in more than 50% of participants, with secondary objectives to assess virus and symptom kinetics during infection. 18 participants became infected, with viral load rising steeply and peaking at around five days after inoculation. Virus was first detected in the throat, but rose to significantly higher levels in the nose, peaking at uh, 8.87 log 10 copies per milliliter. Viable virus was recoverable from the nose up to 10 days after inoculation on average. There are no serious adverse events. Mild to moderate symptoms were reported in 89% of infected participants beginning two to four days after inoculation, whereas 11% of the participants remained asymptomatic, no symptoms at all. Anosmia or dysosmia developed in more than 83% of the participants. No quantitative correlation was noted between viral load and symptoms with high viral loads present even in asymptomatic infection. 
All infected individuals develop serum spike-specific IgG and neutralizing antibodies. Results from lateral flow tests were strongly associated with variable virus, and modeling showed that twice-weekly rapid antigen tests could diagnose infection before 70 to 80% of viable virus had been generated. This comes to us from Killingly et al. 2022. For me, this is a fascinating study looking at the reality of SARS-2 activity in the human that is healthy. However, this data is only useful historically as Delta is no longer with us and teenagers and young adults are not the only affected group and do not represent most people. They are limited in their value as immune activity changes dramatically with age and most of these people have no core morbid disease risk. All that said, the data is remarkable as a study of disease in related to timeline and in a real-time controlled analysis. Number two. From Cell Reports Medicine, the ongoing SARS-CoV-2 pandemic highlights the importance of determining the breadth and durability of humoral immunity to SARS-CoV-2 mRNA vaccination. Herein, we characterize the humoral response to 27 naive and 40 recovered vaccinees. SARS-CoV-2-specific antibody and MBC responses are durable up to six months, although antibody half-lives are shorter in naive recipients. The magnitude of the humoral responses to vaccination strongly correlates with responses to initial SARS-CoV-2 infection. Neutralizing titers are lower against SARS-CoV-2 variants in both recovered and naive vaccinees, with titers more reduced in naive recipients. While RBD is the main neutralizing target of circulating antibodies, Moderna vaccinated naives showed a lesser reliance on RBD with greater than 25% neutralization remaining after depletion of RBD binding antibodies. Overall, we observed that vaccination induces higher peak titers and improves durability in recovered as compared to naive vaccinees. These findings have broad implications for current vaccine strategies deployed against the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic. We have noted this response type before. Natural immunity followed by vaccination offers a broader and better response than naive SARS-2 person. This is uniquely, uh, excuse me, this is unlikely to matter anymore as almost all of us have had this virus over the past two years. A booster now for anyone will provide a decent, albeit short-lived response. Boosters remain a necessity only for high risk based on literature date from my understanding. Number three, from Scientific American, quote, according to Barrick, B-A-R-I-C, Omicron is the first SARS-CoV-2 variant to evolve in the context of mounting immunity in the population. The result of vaccinees and prior infection with other forms of the virus. Earlier variants, namely Alpha, Beta, Gamma, and Delta, competed for dominance primarily on the basis of how well they infect human cells in high numbers and transit efficiently among people. But Omicron acquired the further advantage of being able to resist immune defenses against the variants that came before, thereby increasing the number of susceptible people in the population. The difference in neutralizing antibody responses against Omicron compared with prior variants is massive, Barrick says. Neutralizing antibodies deflect SARS-CoV-2 from binding to ACE2 receptors, the virus's entry point into human cells. We're talking about a 15 to 50-fold drop in antibody levels, depending on who runs the assay and how recently you've been infected or boosted. This comes to us from Schmidt, S-C-H-M-I-D-T-C, 
2022. So for me, BA.2 and the next wave of variants will use immune evasion by mutagenesis as the main strategy of infectivity. This is the new norm. The good news is that massive infectivity and rapid sequence increases population immunity in tandem, leading to rapid up and down in disease transmission. Keep yourself out of the high-risk pool through lifestyle change decisions, and that will be a good mitigation factor against any future variants. Number five, more on long COVID. Quote, patients with persistent cognitive impairment months after illness with mild COVID-19 have higher levels of inflammatory markers in their cerebral spinal fluid. Researchers found elevated levels of CSF immune activation and immunovascular markers in individuals with cognitive post-acute sequelae of SARS-CoV-2 infection, PASC. Patients whose cognitive symptoms developed during the acute phase of COVID-19 had the highest levels of brain inflammation. End quote. More evidence that baseline inflammatory dysfunction or host genetic abnormalities are likely driving the PASC brain fog. I am convinced that individuals that suffer long COVID are at baseline inflamed from poor lifestyle choices coupled to underlying host immune weaknesses for viral surveillance and killing. The fact that the immune markers are noted in the brain post-illness is likely a sign that viral particles or remnants of the virus having penetrated a leaky brain barrier. This leads to glial cells and other immune-mediating immune cells to be angry in the cerebral spinal fluid and brain. Again, the answer remains, control what you control. Eat, sleep, move, and live cleanly. Number six, Omicron did its job for immunity, according to the CDC. 95% of tested individuals had evidence of SARS-CoV-2 infection in the past. BA.1 Omicron tore through this country, leading to a wave of immune understanding that now is like is leaving us all in a place of prepared immunological status. Number seven, Mensa and colleagues noted that reinfection rates closely followed community infection rates. The overall reinfection rate was 67 per 100,000. Adults had 73 per 100,000 and children 22 per 100,000. The reinfection rate after primary infection was 0.68% overall. 0.73% in adults and 0.18% in children younger than 5 and 0.24% in children between the ages of 5 and 12 and 0.49% in those aged 12 to 16. There were 109 children admitted to the hospital with reinfection, 72% of which had comorbidities. Intensive care admissions were rare and there were zero deaths after reinfection. Mensa et al. 2022. Number eight, from a recent study in MedRxIV, we have incubation for normal and tumor glial cells with Pfizer-BioNTech COVID-19 mRNA vaccine led to alterations in the biochemical profile of various cell organelles. The vaccine has shown to decrease concentrations of oxidized forms of cytochrome C in mitochondria, which decreases effectiveness of oxidative phosphorylation, reduces apoptosis, and decreases ATP production. Cytochrome C in the mitochondria of cells plays a key role in oxidative phosphorylation and apoptosis, programmed cell death. These are key roles in cancer development. Abramchik, A-B-R-A-M-C-Z-Y-K at all 2022. So the authors of this paper note that the data, hypothetically, this is a key, links COVID vaccine to potential association between cytochrome C activity, the immune system, and cancer development. This possibly could occur with natural disease as well, but I've not seen any data there. 
This research only bears being presented for the knowledge that this virus really messes with the immune function, and that tells me that we need to spend all of our efforts maintaining quality immune activity. A normal functioning repertoire of natural killer cells and Th1 cells will keep cancer cells at bay. Okay, section two. There's a couple non-COVID hits. Number one, otitis media or a common ear infection and common childhood pneumonia in children greater than two years old should be treated with five days of antibiotics based on new data and guidelines. This comes to us from William et al. 2022. This has two downstream benefits. First, the reduced exposure antibiotics reduces antibiotic resistance in bacteria, which is becoming a big problem. Second, the reduced antibiotic exposure helps to reduce the damage to the intestinal microbiome that is a known antecedent risk factor for autoimmunity and chronic diseases of inflammation. I highly recommend that everyone adhere to these newer and, in my mind, better guidelines. Less is more, folks. Number two. Placing ear tympanic membrane ventilation tubes is not necessary if your child is not found to have persistent effusions behind the tympanic membrane when visiting the ENT specialist. This is true even in a child with recurrent ear infections. Okay, let's move on to update number 60, which corresponded to April 25th of 2022. Okay, Omicron now has three strains in the United States. Newer variant BA.2 makes up 74% of current case volume based on different parts of the country, while Omicron BA.1.1 is at 6% and B2.12.1 is at 19%. Delta and BA.1.1.529, which we saw two weeks ago, is now gone by competition. Incredible how fast this stuff happens. Cases are increasing in some cities around the country with some values being up to more than 100,000 cases per week. Uh, but hospitalization and hospital mortality and morbidity is not following in our local hospitals and what I'm seeing around the country. So this is good. We're not in a state of massive disease burden and risk from a hospitalization and death perspective. Last week, I flew for the first time without a mask. It was a really nice feeling of normalcy. It was a feeling that we're finally waking up to the reality that COVID and other illnesses are here to stay. Thus, we need to live with them in the best way that we can. I say this for myself and all the individuals that are lower risk and not risk averse. For everyone that chooses to keep their masks on, no problem. That is a respected choice. And for some people, that absolutely may be necessary. We are here to support your choice. We are a country that believes in choice above most things. Now that it is legal to do so, I will choose my path without mask unless at work. No judgment, just what I feel. Don't listen to any media that judges or prejudges to know anything regarding this disease or pandemic without following the science. Because we've seen very often that there's a lot of non-science following media coverage and a lot of unbiased scientists looking out for your best interests are not being covered. So for me... Follow the unbiased scientists. Don't follow folks that have an agenda because the agenda, unfortunately, may push you in the wrong direction. Quick hit number one for this newsletter update. A fascinating study published this month looked at the pathophysiology of post-acute SARS-CoV-2 or long COVID issues. The authors include Inyango San Milan, who is an expert in exercise physiology. The results are very important for our understanding of the fatigue and general dysfunction in post-acute SARS-2 COVID-19 disease state. 
What did they find? As they write in scientific terms, there is an urgent need to understand the pathogenesis of PASC and find effective treatments. The cardiopulmonary exercise test is commonly used to investigate unexplained exertional dyspnea. As such, it could provide insight into mechanisms of PASC. Cardiopulmonary exercise test, or CPET, data can be used to calculate rates of beta-oxidation of fatty acids and of lactate clearance, providing insight into mitochondrial function. Fit individuals have better mitochondrial function and a higher rate of fat oxidation during exercise than less fit individuals. Our results suggest that patients with PASC have significant impairment in fat oxidation and increased blood lactate accumulation during exercise regardless of previous comorbidities. This comes to us from DeBoer, D-E-B-O-E-R, et al. 2022. So, what the authors are saying in principle is that SARS-2 sh- will cause a shift in the function of energy centers of our cells, and in this case, specifically the muscle cell. The mitochondria becoming the center of research of many disease states as they provide the energy for locomotion, thought, digestion, and so much more. Remember that we take all micronutrients in as food or beverage where they are broken down in the GI tract and then absorbed in the small intestine leading to small molecules of glucose free fatty acids and amino acids, which are sent around the body for use as energy. The mitochondria and various cells in our body primarily use fat and glucose as the main energy players for most of us most of the time. For some reason, most likely a genetic predisposition, certain individuals are susceptible to a SARS-2-induced shift in mitochondrial ability to burn fat as oxidation and clear lactate after glycolysis of glucose. This shift leads to profound exercise intolerance and generalized fatigue. The mitochondria prematurely shifting the substrate of energy generation from fat burning to glycolysis acting like an athlete at peak performance. Zone 5 training versus what should be happening at lower levels of training, which is fat oxidation. For more of the science on this, uh, we'll talk more at the article below. But just understand that what appears to be happening is that the SARS-2 virus is shifting how we are acting within our cells, acting like we're in an all-out sprint. Not so good for us if this happens day upon day upon day. You will be exhausted. Number two, quote, people are now confused about what it means to be fully vaccinated. It is easy to understand how this could happen. Arguably, the most disappointing error surrounding the use of COVID-19 vaccines was the labeling of mild illness or asymptomatic infections after vaccination as breakthroughs. As is true for all mucosal vaccines, the goal is to protect against serious illness, to keep people out of the hospital, intensive care unit, and morgue. The term breakthrough, which applies failure, created unrealistic expectations and led to the adoption of zero-tolerance strategy for this virus. If we are to move from the pandemic to an endemic state at some point, we're going to have to accept that vaccination or natural infection or a combination of the two will not offer long-term protection against mild illness. End quote. Paul Offit, OFFIT 2022. That whole article is worth reading and the newsletter link, you can get to the article. I highly encourage you to read the whole thing. Dr. Offit gives very, very high quality cogent arguments as to what we need to be looking for as far as COVID-19 vaccines. Number three, from Drs. Gandhi, G-A-N-D-H-I, and Noble, we have an article called A Rational Roadmap to Future COVID Management. Quote, sixth, 
We need a more targeted approach to boosters. This requires more precise reporting from the CDC, which involves categorizing severe breakthroughs infections by the specific comorbidities and vaccine, vaccination status of those hospitalized, compared to many European countries such as the United Kingdom. The U.S. at large has failed to provide more detailed data on severe COVID-19 breakthroughs. More refined data will allow more, for more efficient targeting of future booster shots, prioritizing those more likely to benefit from regular boosting by agent health status. We should continue to upgrade and improve our ventilation systems in public spaces, including schools, which will accrue long-term benefits from reduced transmission of all respiratory pathogens to improve air quality in areas plagued by wildfires and other environmental pollutants. These are two of 10 items that I completely agree with in this article. Not to mention that upgrading ventilation in schools has the added benefit of improving learning by reducing CO2 levels that get trapped in a closed learning space. Article again can be found at the link in the newsletter. Number four, quote, during this pandemic, we have all lost fa facial expression. It has been two years of the entire world having a masked face. Has this lack of exposure to facial expression contributed to the sense of isolation that many of us feel? Has it deprived us of shared emotions, of empathy, or led to misinterpreted feelings? On the other hand, perhaps we have also gained a new type of intimacy and deliberateness in our interactions, which gets us beyond the immediate biases of seeing someone's whole face. I find I spend more time really learning about who the person is I truly savor moments of shared laughter. It will take time for us to recalibrate to the richness of full facial expression as we begin to reveal ourselves to others once again. I'm trying to be thoughtful about the expressions I convey about the privilege of smiling and revealing the full extent of that smile and how this in turn might make someone else smile, end quote. Ferenzi, F-E-R-E-N-C-Z-I-E, -E -E, 2022. I was surprised by the faces that lay behind the masks that have recently been revealed. My imagination had sent me down some very different pathways. I love seeing the smiles of children again. The facial affect of parents during discussion are now available for me to gaze upon and gauge involvement. There are so many nuances to the face that we have been missing out on over the past few years. Thankfully, these nuances are back to help shed light on emotions, feelings, and so much more. Number five. Ivermectin not useful for COVID. Most of the peer-reviewed scientific data has come to this conclusion. However, one interesting association has some possible merit. Could the efficacy of ivermectin seen in other parts of the world be related to the parasite called Strongyloides stercoralis? Ivermectin is an excellent treatment for this nematode. In an immunocompromised state, this worm can cause disseminated disease. Could COVID patients develop severe immune dysfunction, allowing this parasite to overwhelm the patient, leading to death? Thus, could it be that those treated with ivermectin in parts of the world where the nematode is prevalent in human GI tracts have reduced COVID disease outcome burdens based on the reduction of the nematode-induced disease? This is plausible. Wilson P. 2022 Medscape. What I take from this hypothesis is this. Ivermectin may turn out to have some benefit in persons with a parasitic burden pre-COVID exposure. It does not appear to have any effect otherwise. My real problem with the whole ivermectin story is that it was demonized and called horse medicine, voodoo, etc. Before we truly knew the validity of its action in the pandemic, we had to deal with a ridiculous media onslaught of negativity and shame around the thought or possibility 
Medicine has to be very careful to not fall prey to indoctrinated beliefs based on non-scientists or politically motivated scientists masquerading as the knowers. The scientific method is very clear. Any hypothesis is valid until proven incorrect. We have a lot to learn still from the fallout of this pandemic. I lay a ton of blame at the feet of the political media medical complex that purports to be the knowers of truth before that is even possible. Faith in these institutions are at an all-time low for me and for many. It is now the responsibility of them to rebuild trust as it will be mine if and when I fail you. Number six, myopericarditis. Following COVID-19 vaccines versus other vaccines, the overall incidence of myopericarditis from 22 studies, including 405 million doses, was 33.3 cases per million vaccine doses and did not differ significantly between people who received COVID-19 vaccines. Compared with COVID-19 vaccination, the incidence of myopericarditis was significantly higher following smallpox vaccinations, but was not significantly different after influenza vaccinations or in studies reporting on various other non-smallpox vaccinations. Among people who received COVID-19 vaccines, the incidence of myopericarditis was significantly higher in males, in people younger than 30, after receiving an mRNA vaccine, and after a second dose of vaccine. Ling et al. 2022. Okay, section two, non-COVID hits. Number one, firearms are now killing more young humans than cars. In 2020, excuse me, in 2017, there was a crossover point where eight deaths occurred per 100,000 young persons between one and 24. Since 2019, firearm deaths are now at 10 per 100,000. These results are twofold in cause in my estimation. One, cars are much safer now, leading to less deaths despite lots of crashes. Two, firearms are up, excuse me, firearm deaths are up because of society. Our mental health struggles are real and massively exacerbated by the pandemic with little outcome change available in the modern medical system. Number two, disinfectants and allergies. From the journal Occupational Environmental Medicine, we see disinfectants are widely used in the medical field, particularly recently because of the coronavirus pandemic, which has led to an increase in their use by both medical professionals and the general population. We use data from 78,900 mother-child pairs who participated in the Japanese Environment and Children's Study, which is prospective birth cohort recruited between January 2011 and March 2014. We examine the associations between maternal disinfectant use during pregnancy and allergic diseases, asthma, eczema, and food allergies in children. Compared with those who never use disinfectants, participants who use disinfectant every day had a significantly higher risk of asthma in their offspring. The associations between disinfectant exposure and eczema were similar to those of asthma. We found a significant exposure-dependent relationship. There were no significant associations between disinfectant use and food allergies. Long known as association between other cleanliness and allergic type disorders. This is yet another study to put in your memory banks of why you should choose a posture of soap and water for hand washing when the time necessitates, i.e. after using the bathroom, touching a sick person, before eating, etc. Throw away your hand sanitizers and cleaning agents for general use. Three, antibiotic exposure and cognitive function. Use of antibiotics, of antibiotics can impact the gut microbiome and has been linked with chronic disease in multiple studies over the past two decades. 
Despite prior data sets, there is no published evidence of an association between long-term antibiotic use in adults and cognitive function. They say, quote, we conducted a prospective population-based cohort study of almost 15,000 participants in the Nurses Health Study 2 who completed a self-administered computerized neuropsychological test battery between 2014 and 2018. Women who reported at least two months of antibiotic exposure in midlife had lower mean cognitive stores, scores seven years later, after adjustment for age and educational attainment of the spouse and the parent, compared with non-antibiotic users. Thus, the relation of antibiotic use to cognition was roughly equivalent to that found for three to four years of aging. Long-term antibiotic use in midlife is associated with small decreases in cognition assessed seven years later. These data underscore the importance of antibiotic stewardship, especially among aging populations. Meta et al. 2022, M-E-H-T-A. This is an observational study, but there are very good scientific realities as to why this would come to pass. Altered microbial bacterial communities from antibiotic use will have downstream effects on inflammation and neurotransmitter function. So for me, the simple answer is avoid antibiotics unless you really don't have a choice. All right, so that's it for this week, covering coronavirus updates number 59 and 60, which was mid-April. I hope everyone is doing well, and as always, hug those kids. The information provided in this newsletter is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for advice and treatment provided by your physician or healthcare professional and is not to be used to diagnose or treat a health issue. This newsletter audiocast does not constitute the development of a provider-patient relationship. Have a great day.